Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and aesthetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor with over 16 years experience in facial aesthetics. And I'm David Siegel, an entrepreneur and business mentor with over 20 years of experience in our industry. Our podcasts are aimed at industry professionals and any information or advice given is general in nature. You should consult with a healthcare provider before undergoing any treatment. You can also subscribe to us on Patreon for on-demand content for injectable business education. Welcome to 2024, buddy. First one for the year. I was literally going to say the same there thing you to go. you. Well, we're like we're like one person. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Did you have How a nice you? Christmas? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. It was very relaxed. I stayed in Sydney, spent time with the family, enjoyed Sydney roads without mountains of traffic. Yeah. It was nice. What about you? You were all over the place. Yeah. Oh, look, London was nice. Saw family, yep. touch base with a few people, but it was you know, miserable cold. So yes. nice to sort of get out of there and get some sunshine. And we stopped off in Dubai on our way home, but it was great. Kids loved it. And um, we're back, yeah, and back hey. into the swing of things. So today for the first episode of 2024, we are joined by Nadia Zanko, who is one of our very special and I guess one of the most contributing, is that a word? Contributing or one of the biggest contributors in our private WhatsApp groups as part of our Patreon community. And Nadia is a clinical nurse specialist with a background in psychology. And this conversation was spawned off a Patreon piece of content that we were recording together uh, last week only, talking about how to understand patient psychology, how do you do a consult, What is the patient mindset that's coming in to undergo some of these cosmetic treatments? We covered things like conflict resolution, but we only did it in sort of a small snippet. And I thought, wow, this would be a great piece of content Mm. to share with the entire IA community. Hence, asking Nadia to come back and join us for a full-fledged episode. So I think it's a great way to start off 2024 with a bit of psychology and getting in the right frame of mind for the for the year ahead yeah and it's ex- it's exciting for me because this is completely unplanned <laughs> i got off a plane about four days ago and i saw your content i thought that was awesome so yes let's see where this one goes um normally we have a script and a bit of a story for our podcast but we're just going to go for it on this one well we've got some key points yeah yeah that's true yes so let's introduce nadia nadia tell everyone where you're based and your background because you're unusual you don't inject but you're part of our community and you do contribute a lot and i know you know a lot about skin and of course psychology so you know sell yourself to to the listeners and tell us well tell them why you're part of our community and what you do good morning first of all both jake and david and this is really unfair i have the inaugural 2024 meeting that you know like <laughs> the how, how high could you set the bar for me on this one really <laughs> well everyone's still sort of on christmas time so you might be okay you might be all right <laughs> Please be gentle with me. Okay. Um, who am I? What do I do? Okay. I work in Bathurst. I, 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 to be honest with you, I, st- I started out in nursing in the 80s. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> um, in Broken Hill. Did a lot of the RFDS work. So for those, you know, international guys, the Royal Flying Doctor Service. So, yes, I was the, you know, the crazy nurse with the little birds um, a ventilator in my hand, running up the road, putting people together again. So that is where I started out. Um, let's shorten that story by a couple of decades. Yes, I got into first degree was actually a sociology and then into psychotherapy and that sort of thing, got into mental health, started a private practice in Sydney in 
uh, Bondi Junction with a, an incredible woman called Greta Goldberg, who probably was the person who taught me about business. Um, and we can we can circle back to that a bit. Then that practice moved over to Darlinghurst, and it was it was the AIDS era, so there was a a, a lot of stuff going on. If you can remember. Sydney, New York, all of that, Silicon Valley, a lot of those people were coming home. You know, the age era hit hard in Australia, as it did the world. Uh, Then I left Sydney because of a horse. Most people think you leave Sydney because of a lover. No, well, she (laughs) was my lover. I left Sydney because of a horse. She hated Centennial Park, so I moved her out to Bathurst. My business partner, who is a psychiatrist, had a practice here in Bathurst, so I joined that practice. 20, 30 years later, we now have a massive practice in psychiatry in Bathurst. But what I started to think about about a decade ago was what happens when people hit their 50s and 60s, there's this massive dive, and we know there's a massive dive back into depression, back into even suicidality, suicide rates go up phenomenally. And so my thinking was, what in God's name is going on? And as I started to ask people more and more about, you know, like what is really going on? You've been a high-functioning individual all your life. And they would they would start to talk about in loose ways their aesthetic. People think I'm always angry. People think I'm always unhappy. I can't get the jobs that I used to get because I'm always perceived as angry. But I'm not angry. This is just me. So I started to think, well, is that the Why? um is that is that the is that the is the colloquial term for that resting bitch face? Well, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. I mean, the Americans who coined a, a term for everything call it the wolf look. And if you think about a wolf, <laughs> wow. it gets angry. You know, everything pulls forward. Jo- Jake will know this very, very well. The jaw changes, the the cheeks hollow. So you get that real wolf angry look. The you know, the gorilla gets really heavy. The, the eyebrows slide in. So you do, women especially, do start to look like an angry wolf. And if you're sitting at a panel, who in God's name is going to, you know, employ the wolf in the room? Mm. They want the happy face. So people were really, women especially, were really struggling with this. And I was seeing women from, you know, the banking industry, you know, in Darlinghurst, because that's where all of this came from. So, you know, we're talking about Silicon Valley people. We're talking about lawyers that were working, you know, international law. And they were all saying a very similar thing. I can't get a job. Something bad is going on. I am being overlooked. I have the skills. I have the experience, but I'm being overlooked. What's going on? So that prompted a study more in terms of morphology of ageing. What is going on? But that's how my journey in aesthetics started out. And I figured at that point, you know what, there's no point my trying to be the master of everything. I, injecting just seemed like a world where, you know, that is a skill in itself. And I keep coming back to this. It's not just a part of medicine. It's actually a part of, like, psychiatry. Injecting is actually an art and a science. As Psychiatry is exactly the same. It's an art and it's a science. And it's not something that you can learn out of a book. You really need good mentors. And that's what I love about you guys. You know, Jake, especially, you have mentor days. You have, you know, you teaching. And I think that's how the cosmetic industry 
evolves and it's very, very similar to psychiatry because you can't teach psychiatry out of a book either. You've actually got to be at the coalface and learn it hands-on. That's so interesting. So that's how my journey started. Yeah. Um, for some geography for the people who yep. don't uh, understand, so Bathurst is pretty regional. Yeah. New South Wales, the same state as us, but yeah, so, far, far out west. So, yeah. So about 250k. Yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm the other side of the Blue Mountains to you guys. Yeah. So it takes about, well, I have a friend that lives in Mount Victoria. So I live in eastern suburbs of Sydney. So it would take me about one and a half to two hours to get to Mount Victoria. And then it's probably another, what, hour and a half? Hour? Yeah. Yep. Past then. Yeah, west. Yeah. yeah. And tell us about your clinic because even today as we're having a sort of a pre-chat, but you know, before this podcast, I, I understood that there was a dovetailing of, you know, your types of patients, the psychology patients and the mental health with your aesthetic doctors. But you, you said that's not so common. So how does your clinic well, run? It, it, there's, there's, a, there's a minor cohort that switches over. So the cohort is our younger people who – our psychiatrists might see who have skin disorders. So the predominant disorder would be acne, and I'm mm. talking grade two, three, maybe even you know a low grade four acne. So it, they're fairly severe acne. Now the interesting thing about acne, as you you would already know, acne it, when it starts early on, it ha- it impacts the brain and starts to shape the brain in a way that creates a depressed form in the brain. So depression and anxiety jump up to about 35% in that cohort alone. And if we don't treat that, so we can we can treat the depressive side of it, or at least we can try it, but we don't actually get a positive result in our treatment unless we actually treat the skin condition. Mm. So I started to look at, well, how in God's name do you treat acne? Like, all these kids are coming in, it knocks about their schooling, it knocks around their relationships, it then knocks about their employment opportunities. So we're just hitting the same stick again. Mm. What is going on and how do we pe- help people get past all of these things? So that's really the only cohort that crosses over until we get to women in their perimenopause and they're starting to ask the same question. I'm not angry. This is just how I look. Mm. What can happen? And my antidepressants are not necessarily cutting the mustard anymore. Mm. So with our psychotherapy practice, it's a massive practice because we're one of the few practices that cover pretty much most of Australia. We have a little aircraft that we tend to go out to various communities, um, cover those communities occasionally. Um so our practice in psychiatry has about 10,000 people on, on its books. We have about 840 GPs referring in. We cover the lower end of Queensland, some of Western Australia, a lot of ACT. So it's a big, it's a big, big practice. In terms of our skin clinic, our skin clinic has about 1,500 people on it. Um, I cannot see anywhere near all of those people because I only do three days a week. Um, Sean Walsh, is we're very lucky to have him coming out to our clinic to do our injectables. He would run a clinic Friday night and all day Saturday, so we could do a 12-hour day on Saturday and maybe four hours on a Friday afternoon every month, and we still don't we still don't get through everybody. Yeah. So they're big, they're big practices for small areas. Mm. I've been trying to twist David's arm to get an IA aeroplane, but we're, <laughs> we haven't quite got the budget for that yet. But uh, one day, 
an aircraft, an aircraft's about the same. I was thinking this this morning. An aircraft's about the same as a really expensive laser. So you know, ditch the laser idea. Buy yourself an aircraft. Yeah. All right, <laughs> sure. let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> so I actually wanted to um, touch on something because it was such a relevant point. Um, you said about acne, how it affects the mental health, and to improve the mental health, you kind of have to treat the acne. So mm-hmm. clearly, the cosmetic or the aesthetic dovetails into the mm. mental health. So I think we all accept that. That that's very obvious but sometimes when we think of aesthetics like injecting obviously there is a crossover you know patients have a motivation to come whatever it is Uh but then also we have this big dynamic and and it's particularly relevant because the new regulations here in australia that we have to screen people for mental health and we're almost told if they have any type of mental health red flag let alone body dysmorphia we should be hands off and give them to someone else. So, it, it's who would a, you like to give them to? Yeah, it, well, exactly. Who do you send them to? But also, it's a tricky thing to navigate because sometimes, and I've got to be very careful of how I say this. Sometimes the aesthetic will help the mental health, and and I've why, got. To, why do you have to be careful? Well, because I don't want people sitting or listening to this thinking I'm saying Botox makes you feel happy. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's quite as... And um, fillers are necessary for making you feel better. Yeah. Sometimes that is true and sometimes that is very bad. Yeah. And maybe Nadia can touch on, you know, (laughs) what is the boundary of those two? Yeah. I mean, I think that's potentially a little bit of a reductionist perspective on it because I, th- I think there is truth to that. I mean, uh, I was going to say, Nadia... I, I, I'm only being careful because I'm a doctor. And yeah, people will I mean, me and say, Jake said well, this. I mean, what you were saying, Nadia, about people, ladies going in for an interview and, and having that wolf look, I mean, could it potentially be like this positive feedback loop where you actually don't feel that way about yourself but because people's perception of you is like that, you start to think that and then you become, you actually start to become your thoughts. And then that it starts to create this vicious cycle. So I think there is a lot of merit that perhaps a a physical presentation can actually then start to shape the mind, even if, even if that wasn't I how your mind was starting to begin know with. That is true, yeah, because all of my patients tell me that. And even if it's inappropriate to treat, they will still voice, well, "I want a treatment because it will make me feel better." Yeah, and and that's my job to try and tease out. Well, when is it appropriate and when is it not? But it's like everything in life. I mean, everything's a matter of degree. If you drink too much water, it's bad for you. If you exercise too much, it is bad for you. <laughs> so I mean, if you have too much, if you go to that point where you actually start to become obsessive and start to be, get, become body dysmorphic, mm-hmm. is it? the treatment's problem or is it the fact that maybe the practitioner hasn't been skilled enough to identify when is too much too much or what do you think Nadi? let's unpack this a bit because it's getting a bit complicated for me my brain's hurting <laughs> okay <laughs> you know you both both of you bring really important points to the table i'm going to address um jake's first of all and put a caveat out there yes i work in mental health but don't shoot me down if i perhaps give you some opinions that may not be exactly textbook. Mm -hmm. Body dysmorphia, for one, is incredibly rare. There may be a possibility that we see it more often in the cosmetic industry. That may be the case, but I won't actually jump in on that. And I have picked the brains of my brains trust, Andrew Frucas, and he says he doesn't necessarily believe that that's the case either. Mm -hmm. So... Okay, where how did this come about? Well, we know that in the instances where people who have a confirmed diagnosis of body dysmorphia who have had cosmetic surgery 
have at times become worse. So their body dysmorphia has it at times become worse. Now, we're not necessarily talking about surgery here, but we are talking about cosmetic injectables or cosmetic um, Botox, cosmetic injectables and things like that. Now, David's point about could people actually feel better, let's just go back kind of 100 years, and Jake, you might remember this in, you know, the the back door of your mind when you when you probably did study um, psychiatry. If you think about attachment theory, now attachment theory says if you smile at a baby, what's the chances it'll smile back? Hi. Hi. <laughs> okay. If you growl or scowl at a baby, what's the chances it'll burst into tears? Hi. Barely high. Okay. So the same thing happens when we look at ourselves in a mirror. If we look like we're angry or unhappy, the message to our own brain is we are angry or unhappy. Now, even though we might be saying, oh, but I'm not, I'm looking at something that appears unhappy to me. So I would actually say, and You know, I wish Medicare and the the powers to be were listening to this. In some cases, I actually think cosmetic treatments are as good, if not better, than a lot of psychiatric treatments in treating those kinds of conditions. Yeah. Because if I can look in the mirror and go, oh, that doesn't look too bad, I'm already ahead of the game. I'm already feeling good in myself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, anecdotally, that's what every patient will turn around and say they in will. some in some way. I guess I was it's being... It's not anecdotal. We can actually do functional MRIs and see that. Yeah. I was you just can being... Show, you can, Sorry, I was just you gonna... can show an angry picture to a person and they will feel angry. They will feel upset. Yeah. You show a happy picture of themselves, you know, where they feel relatively good about themselves and we do some functional MRIs, you'll actually see positive parts of the brain light up. So it's not just anecdotal. There is good science for it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no secret that, oh, let's use the word Botox, but I guess we can extend it to anti-wrinkle treatments. It's got one of the most highest satisfactions for any treatment because it makes you feel better as well as look better. And all of the studies show that, you know, patients not just rate themselves looking better, but they... They can't sometimes put their finger on, on on what they mean by it, but they feel better as well. Mm. They're satisfied. So I would, from a, from a psych- psychological perspective, I would say they feel better, therefore they are happier. Yes. And then we come back to the consultation. What actually engages people in a consultation is how they feel. We're a social species, remember. We're a social being. We want to be heard. We want to be understood. So if we feel that the person doing the consult actually hears us, actually understands us, then we're going to engage. Absolutely. Yeah. You get engagement, you get a patient. Yeah, it's true. We are social, I mean, it's, That's how we've survived and built our societies is through collaboration and, and community. I mean, we no individual human can survive on its own, really. That's in, right. We need to be building communities. And as you said, and, and there is this, you, you see this with sort of trends. People have a need to conform. To society, we want to be part. Of, we want to be part of the tribe. If you're not, if you don't feel like you're part of the tribe, you're left out. It can have uh-huh. devastating effects on someone's psychology and their ability to be successful in the world. 
totally. Yeah. In fact, in, in, in some species, if you're not part of the tribe, you'll be killed. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's how primal that can feel. And that's why people feel bullied if they don't feel, you know, part of the clique or part yeah. of the group. Yeah. There's a, there is a real fear. Yeah. And, and then I guess we look at what are the societal sort of the societal issues or, or things that have happened that have, that have caused, you know, women to be pushed into the workforce for longer, potentially people having to work later into their life where the aging process happens because it happens to all of us. No one can, father time is undefeated. You, can, you can't, you can't sort of cheat, you can't cheat the system in that respect. So we are in a situation where people have got extended careers. They are competing with people that are younger in the workforce. Absolutely. So it's no fault of their own that they're in this situation. Society has sort of pushed us down that path. Society has pushed in some degree, but also women women feel more confident and therefore yes. feel more valued and want to keep working. Yeah, true. Yeah, and actually it's not just the workplace. If you just think about society and how it's changed, many people 40 years ago when they were 40 looked and acted pretty mature, yeah. whereas now a 40-year-old's well, I'm 43, <laughs> you're 43, yeah. I don't feel old or not not. Most days, anyway. <laughs> but also, you know, our life is just our, our longevity is longer, and so we want to look and feel younger, longer. It's just mm. we've changed. Yeah, we've, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, going back to what you were saying, Nadia, about perimenopausal women, obviously particularly, but I guess men occasionally have a similar sort of thing. Mm -hmm. One of the most common reasons people come to see me and all injectors is that change in aesthetic because they're just not as, you know, they don't feel as happy when they look in the mirror as they did five years ago. And often mm -hmm. that can be quite a crushing change where, you know, everything does get saggier, drier, wrinklier, hormones changing, sex life is changing, just everything changes. And, and many women sort of hit a wall. So it, it, it can be physical as well as mental. Mm. Yeah. It, and it is because... When I do a consult, I often get people to do a, a DAS, so a depression and anxiety scale, and then I'll get them to bring a photo when they felt their best. Mm. And this is, you know, this is just, it's useful in a consult, but it's also useful just for me to collect data because I'm a bit of a data collector. And if, if I'm looking at somebody who is in their 50s, 60s, not happy, and I have a look at their DAS, their you know, depression and anxiety scales, they'll be fairly high. Then if I say to them, I want you to think back at this picture, kind of in your, in your mind, get a mental image of where you were, what you were doing, what was going on, and on a scale of 1 to 10, what did your depression, what did your anxiety maybe feel, your stress? So I work out what their language is. What did you feel then? And they'll tell you it was much higher. And I think, and then I say to them, what do you think has changed? You're the same person. In fact, you are a more skilled, you are a more rounded person because you've got more experience. What do you think's changed? And they'll say, oh, it's these horrible lines. And it'll nearly always be glabella. It'll be, you know, my mouth is drooping. I've got these jowls. It'll, and it'll be their aesthetic. If they will never go to, oh, you know, uh, It'll, it'll never be this has changed in my life or that's changed in my life. It will be the immediate thing that they can see. Yes. They yeah. come, what they can see, that's the problem. Not life was the problem and I, you know, bought up three kids or, you know, paid for the house and whatever else it was. It'll be the very thing that they see. So they come to us with a problem 
that they want us to fix. Mm. And that's, I think, the bit that we need to unpack. Yeah. Well, let's 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 go there. So, I mean, Jake and I have spoken millions of times in the podcast about training and how we skill up injectors and get them ready to go and face patients for the first time. And there's a huge amount of emphasis when it comes to clinical application. How do you treat this patient? What's the pattern for this Botox treatment? What plane, like, you know, all these technical skills that we, we try and impart on people to be able to do these treatments safely and, and with, and, you know, with good aesthetic outcomes. But I don't think people really prepare uh, practitioners, whether they be doctors or nurses, for I guess the psychological perspective, how do you do a consult? How do you understand what's driving these patients? And so I think that's kind of the missing link. And that's why I think a lot of injectors struggle um, with their consultation process, potentially with patient retention, how they deal with patients that they're just unable to build that rapport with, because you're obviously going to have people that you connect with automatically, and then you're going to have people that you don't. Um, and how do, you sure. t- how do you turn that from a sometimes into an all the time um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll break these down into sections, but just sort of, sort of, sort of prelude the next, the next pieces of the discussion. And then how do you sort of deal with things that have gone wrong when you have a conflict with the patient, when you have a complaint, when something hasn't gone according to plan, how do you deal with that and, and come out in a positive way? So maybe let's just start with, you know, your thoughts on, you know, how we're training and educating injectors and focusing on, on how to prepare people for the consultation process and how they can do it in, a, in an effective way. Because I, if I look around the industry, some of the most successful injectors when it comes from a business and monetary perspective often aren't the most highly skilled clinicians. They're good. Don't get me wrong. I think you have to provide good, reliable, consistent outcomes. But in terms of like the cream of the crop, in terms of their technical ability, it's not always a, a correlation with making the most money. So if you're able to unpack that, I, th- I think there's a lot of value there for, for injectors that want to understand how they can become better um, at the consultation process. You know, you're right. It's such a big, that's a big topic. Yeah. Um, as, you were, as you were describing that or introducing that, there's a book that popped into my mind, The Metaphor of Play. I don't have it on my bookshelf here but I will send you a picture of it, and it may be useful for people. It's um, written by Emeritus Professor Russell Mears. He was a supervisor of mine for psychotherapy, and he talks about when when we engage somebody. So, for example, right now, if we were in a room, there's three of us, okay, so we've got a triad here. And that's often how people turn up. They'll turn up with their friend, and I have no issue. I know if I'm doing, you know, a specific treatment, no, you come on your own. But if I'm doing a consult, um, I'll actually suggest to people, bring your friend along. That's fine because I want it to be a bit like play. Now, the metaphor of play is literally what he's talking about in that book is humans connect through play as kids We can play. You know, we get a game, we play, kids down the street, they all play. So there's this community. But how do adults do that? Like how is it appropriate for adults to actually play? Therefore, how is it appropriate for adults to actually engage? Because that's all a consult is really about. It's about engagement. Now, if you can engage one person and keep that person, then you don't have to keep engaging a new patient every day to fill your book. You want 
you know, David will be able to speak to this a whole lot more. You want to keep the patients you've already invested in mm-hmm. and, and keep those patients and keep them building. So my thinking about this, and others, you know, might say something completely different. My thinking is about engagement. So in terms of, if I, if I think in terms of engagement, there's actually a fourth person in this room. If you and I, the three of us were in a room, there's the middle ground. And the middle ground might be as kids, our cricket field or our soccer ball or whatever. It's the thing we're going to play with. So when somebody comes to me for a consult, I'll say, I will literally say to them, wow, thanks for coming in today. You know, you've taken time out of your, um, your busy schedule. I'm this, I can help you with this. What brought you here today? And so I actually want to start a game. But the game is about how do you play? What's your language? And I will try to use that language. So they'll give me some indication. They'll talk, they'll talk in terms of people either talk very practically, this, that, and the other thing. So they'll talk in a very linear way, or they'll kind of be all over the place in a kind of a metaphorical way. So, you know oh, it happened like this, and they'll tell you stories. So I will start to piggyback onto their language. But all I'm actually doing is creating an engagement Mm. because I want them to feel safe. I know they've come because, you know, in the book it says they want glabella toxin or, they've got you know, they want crow's feet toxin. I know that that's what they think they want. And Jake did a a great... um, it was. It went backwards and forwards quite a bit a while ago about some, somebody wanting tear troughs, and you you made some comments about the fact that maybe that's actually not what they need. So people will come with what they think, but it's up to us to then unpack that story, and that's actually all it is. It's a story. So they think you know they've been on Google or they've been on TikTok or whatever it is they've been on, and you know this person's had some goddamn treatment, whether it's appropriate or not, they think that's what they want. That's not necessarily what is actually needed. But we don't know that until we start to actually engage the person. Once we engage the person, they actually start to tell us a bit about themselves. Then when they tell us a little bit about themselves, we can actually start to unpack how they're thinking. Yeah. Once you get that story, then you actually get a patient. You get a patient almost for life. It's interesting. When when I teach injectors, it, it's very similar to what you just said, but I, I maybe talk in different language. I, I tell them that sure. you've got to be a, a detective. Yes. Um, just like you said, you know, most of our patients, and, and this is our industry's fault, and mm. I think we've spoken about this before, we, we advertise our services very black and white. You know, just like you said, you can come and have glabella tox or lip filler or cheek filler, and, and our patients inevitably come asking for those very binary sort of options because that's what we present them most of the time. That's what we tell them. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's the menu we offer them. Um, and yet, you know, when they come to our clinic and, and they think they want, I don't know, cheek filler, it's our job as the clinician to diagnose and, and you call it play, but I call it investigate. But same thing, right? Sure. We've got to work out, well, who is this person? What's motivated them to come here? What's going on beneath the surface? Ah, I've identified their perimenopausal. Are they working? Are they looking for work? Have they just got divorced? Are they in a relationship? Why are they actually here? Because no one wakes up and just arbitrarily says, I want cheek filler today. 
there's a That's reason exactly right. behind that. Mm-hmm. And it could well be some of those things that you mentioned. I feel saggy. I feel tired. I feel, let's go more extreme. Mm-hmm. I feel ugly. So uh-huh. something has brought that person there and it's our job to tease that out. But it's interesting that you sort of talk about play because, and you encourage them to come with a friend. I understand from maybe from the mental health perspective, maybe that makes them feel more comfortable and maybe more conversive in, in that environment. But for me, I've decided that I actually want the patient on their own so they can actually feel uh-huh. more comfortable to voice why, you know, why they're here without someone pressuring them to do or not do something. Yeah. But, you know, either way, I guess you could argue either way. What do you think, David? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess what, I, what I'm getting from what you're saying, Nadia, is that you're trying to build rapport as quickly as possible so that the patient can communicate. So, I mean, I, when I used to work in sales, I'm not sure you might have listened to some of these discussions that we've had, they used to teach us to do exactly what you did, which was to identify how the patient communicates, what language they're using, the speed at which they're talking, do they oh. use a lot of body language, all those kinds of things because we are subconsciously looking for commonalities. Because if that, once- And see, that's the word I use, play. So what you're saying, commonalities, what you're saying, Jake, as detective work, that's this, you know, the, the third entity in the room. Yeah. Mm. I'm looking at how this person wants to connect, yeah. the social aspect in that individual, and that's what we call adult play because we have to connect through language yeah 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 keep going yeah and i was was just thinking as well in terms of what jake was saying you know people don't wake up one day and say i want cheek filler so what you're i think what you're trying to say um or maybe another way of looking at it is that you're trying to get to the causation rather than the symptom Mm. so when we're trying to work out what is making you feel this way it's not actually the cheek filler that's it's it's the fact that you have a self-perception issue and that might even uh-huh. whether it's imagined or whether it's real um you're feeling a certain way so to try and get the patient to a feel comfortable and relaxed so that you know they I, so i kind of think that once you've got them feeling relaxed and the rapport's there then the channels of communication then open up yeah and that then is when real conversations can happen you can get to the root cause yeah. of what is actually the reason, and they might may not even be consciously aware of it when they when they come in. They really are. Yeah, mm. yeah. So I mean, I think that I mean I agree with everything that you're saying, even though I'm not medical. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess you, you you sort of come across these types of challenges in in all sort of facets of life. It's just looking at it from a different perspective. You know, the other little trick I've learned over the years, for whether it be a psychotherapy patient or a cosmetic patient, if they book an initial consult, I'll never see them on the same day. I want them to actually wait. Now, whether or not, I don't know whether this works in business because I I wouldn't call myself a business person, but what I think it allows people to do is to start planning for that appointment that's coming up Mm. because I want them to start thinking about where they're going, why they're coming to me, and that'll be one of the questions I ask. You've taken time out of your busy day to come here. What do you actually want from me today? You're not going to get a treatment. Chances are you're not even going to get a product off my shelf. But what brought you here today? So I want them to start thinking about that. And I'm lucky enough to be in a position where most people can't see me the same day that they want, they want to make the appointment. So they'll generally have a week or two 
from when they make the appointment to when I actually see them. And I can flick out just little bits of information to them. I'd really like you to fill this out or I'd like you to start thinking about this mm-hmm. or can you can you bring a photo where you felt the happiest in yourself? Not the happiest in your appearance. I'm already starting to use a particular yeah. kind of language. The happiest in yourself. Yeah. Generally, I'll bring a picture where they're, you know, they're all made up and going to the prom. But <laughs> so the question then is, okay, so what made you feel the best in yourself when you look at that picture? So back to your 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 point, David. I didn't realise it was a, a sales technique either, because God knows I don't think I could sell anything to anybody. <laughs> but I think you're right. We have to find their language in order to find out what they actually want. Now, I think when you and I were talking previously, David, yeah. we talked about do we give up sometimes our clinical expertise in order to try to just answer the patient. The patient wants X, Y, Z. They want big lips. They want big cheeks. And do we just do that in the hope that we're going to engage people and we're going to fill our book? You know what? I don't actually think it ever happens because I'm happier to send people away on their first consult with nothing. You're going to get information from me. That's what you've come for. That's what you've bought. And I'm going to send you away with things about how to look for ingredients or the fact that you might be jolly down here because the fat pads have disappeared or the bony structure has disappeared. I'm going to send them away with information to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's actually more valuable because you're you're building a journey. You're building, I'm interested in you, I'm interested. If you've Googled something, then you're already researching. Good on you. And I'll say that to people. Good on you. You're already doing research as to how to look after yourself. Let me help you fine-tune that. Mm, okay. So how do we how do we combat that in in sort of practical terms? Because as Jake said, this industry has sort of grown and evolved and it is a hybrid between sort of want-based and need-based and it's commercialized and you've got large businesses now buying these clinics and advertising this for that much money and, you know, sending them offers and we've been programmed as a society to expect instant gratification. And so it's about balancing the commercial pressures of having a business, paying your bills, being successful versus what you're talking about and what Jake's alluding to as well is, you know, being confident enough to push back, risking that the patient might go somewhere else. So if we can just sort of distill that down into into sort of what practitioners listening to this can implement into their consultation process or things that they might want to start considering, and maybe it's not like a an immediate 180. It's about taking small steps towards slowly changing your practice or developing your skills in a certain area. So how do we, and I guess from both of you, because you're both, you know, Nadia, from a psychology perspective and you as a, a practical practitioner, how do we actually help people listening to this do things better and start changing the way that they're consulting without risk of losing losing their business or their patients and overcoming that fear? I'll, I'll say something first because I was just thinking yeah. about the previous answers and what you guys both said. So when I worked with you, David, yeah. um, in a chain clinic that yes. was several years ago mm-hmm. now, it's only struck me as I've left there and, and sort of changed how I practice and, yes. and I guess created a different patient journey. Yes. But many clinics and many injectors listening to this want walk-in patients because it's high volume, more money, blah, blah, blah. But if you think about it, and just like what Nadia said, 
that's a really tricky patient to deal yeah. with. You have no idea who they are. They've just walked in off the street. Um, they may have literally just seen your advertised hoardings and decided, oh, I'm going to go in and get lips today. Yeah. That's actually the trickiest patient to treat because you have no idea about what, who they are, why they're there. Yeah. And, you know, your risk of um, I, maybe not getting it wrong sort of um, technically, but not understanding the patient, the risk of a complaint or not getting it right is higher than someone who, like Nadia said, you've sort of taken a bit of time to get to know or you've sent some pre-consult forms and got a bit of feedback from them or they've just had a chance to think about it for a week. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it logically, walk-in patients, you know, you might have thought that they're good for your business, but actually very tricky. Mm -hmm. So maybe think about, you know, if you do own a clinic and you have the ability to mold the patient journey in some way, just like Nadia said, maybe think about not allowing patients to, to, to walk in or, or maybe you allow them to walk in, but it's very clear that they can't be treated on the same day. That's a good ring, ring fencing thing that Nadia touched on. Uh, and if patients know that, that they're not going to get treated, but they still want to come, that's quite a good patient because they're yeah. pretty involved in the process and they're quite engaged and they're serious. Yeah. Just, just to cut you off for one second, maybe a strategy to further build demand for you and your business is I'm booked out. Even if you're not. Yeah. Sorry. Everyone wants to get into the nightclub they can't get into with a line out the front, right? <laughs> so, sorry, continue. I just thought I'd throw that in. No, as a it's, little, it's good. Yeah. Um, look, with my um, booking system, it's just, uh, I, I guess I have the ability to, when someone does book in, and it tends to be a few days a week or even a few months in advance, I can send them some information and mm -hmm. I can criticize myself for, for maybe being a bit overboard, but I get a lot of information from them. And, you know, I get the odd patient who grumbles about it, but they all do it because they have to do it. And then even before I've met them, I've got a pretty damn good idea of who's coming um, from obviously, you know, medical history and mm -hmm. so on, but their skin history, dental history, psychological history, and so on. And very occasionally, it will prompt me to reach out before I've met them to get some more questions or, or some more answers or to probe, because I really want to make sure that that patient who comes is, you know, obviously sound and, and medically mm -hmm. fit, but also mentally fit. And, and isn't going to be a problem either for me, but also for themselves. Very occasionally patients come thinking they need something and, you know, you, you, you do everything in, in the best of your power to please them and it's just never going to work. And it isn't just, you know, the obvious things like BDD, but sometimes you just get a whiff of this isn't going to work well and I can't put my finger on why. So sometimes I just need more information mm -hmm. and, or I'll just introduce myself and tell them a bit more about how things work or the pricing mm -hmm. or just, I don't know, sometimes you just get that sixth sense that some more information is needed. And I think that's really saved my bacon a lot yeah. of times. Um, but, you know, I, I know that doesn't work for everyone and, and it depends what clinic you work in. But, you know, it, yeah. it, be the detective or, or, or be that playful um, sort of information gatherer where you just yeah. go the extra mile to try and suss people out if you can before you've met them. That, that would sort of be a, a good takeaway mm. for me because I've learned a lot about that. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Nadia? I, look, I couldn't agree more. And I was just wondering there from David's perspective in – in mentoring and building mm. businesses, David, do you have a sense of whether you get I – look, I look for patients that I'm going to have for a long time. Mm. Yeah. I, I really am not big on patients that walk in the door because I know they're going to walk in somebody else's yeah. door in five minutes' time. So I, I find that I do better with patients that I know I'm going to probably keep for a long period of time. And the more I push back, the more I say no, the more they actually want. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Now, yes, and I know a lot of people starting out in business might, might go, oh, that's too risky. I don't want to say no to a patient. But I think like Jake's saying, the more you can actually get to know the patient or the more information you can get about what they actually want, the more you can meet their need. Mm-hmm. And you might not be able to do all of that on day one. Yeah. And if you are if you are seeing people that are coming straight off the street just because your door is open, then I kind of wonder about that motivation. Do yeah. they are they looking for just a quick fix? Well, go and buy a cup of coffee. You know, <laughs> generally for me, quick fix a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. I actually I want a journey. I want a patient on a journey. What we're doing is medicine. Now I know it's been kind of touted as you know, kind of, I don't know how it's been touted. It's kind of been morphed out of medicine into something that is, you know, a bit too Hollywood for me. But I think at the end of the day, do you go to your surgeon and get your surgery the same day? No. Do you, you know, do you go to a cardiologist and, get, you know, get everything done the same day? No. It's the same mm. thing. Cosmetics is about helping you to feel the best you possibly can in whatever journey you're in right now. And I can't achieve that in the first 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. You know, I might be able to shove some some neurotoxin in your face, but I can jolly well guarantee that's not going to make you walk out the door feeling better. Mm. So if we sort of put this into, into commercial terms, because that's always the balancing act, right, because this is a, a need-based area of medicine. It's not It's not like a – sorry, it's, it's a want-based, not a need-based. So – the, the, the challenge that a lot of people have is that they've got the commercial pressures of having a business. And so perhaps the best way to look at this is to map out how long it's going to take you if you do things the correct way, the way that we're talking about here, taking your time, being selective with your patients, really getting to understand them, being happy not to deal with same-day walk-in patients and doing treatments, and actually plan for what is normal in business um, because we've been very spoiled in this industry. And I think in, in some ways this has created a rod for our own back because we've been trained to think you can open up a clinic and you'll have patients straight away and you'll be successful in a couple of years and giddy up, let's go. That's not the reality of, of businesses. Most businesses do not make money for the first two to three years in terms of profit. And so I mm-hmm. think that a lot of the problems that people run into is that they are not prepared from a commercial perspective. They don't understand business at all. And they open up their doors, they spend money on devices, on a fit out, you know, commit to a lease. And then they put themselves in a situation that they can't get out of. And then you start to compromise on what you should be doing for the patient, what's best for the patient and what's actually best for you as a practitioner. So my advice to all of my, my consulting clients is you need to be prepared for a two to three year journey before you start making money. And, and putting yourself in a situation where you're able to do that. So maybe it's not about opening up your own business straight away. Maybe it's working for someone else, identifying a mentor, having another job on the side that is providing you with income so you do not have that overwhelming pressure on you to make a lot of money from your cosmetic practice because you know it's going to be a long journey Mm. to get there. And so I think, you know, starting with the right information and understanding how to navigate those commercial pressures and alleviating them will then allow you to make sensible clinical decisions for your patients and actually build the patients that you want. Mm. A lot of people will just say yes to everybody. 
And then they start hating their life. They hate the patients that they're seeing. They're not passionate about it anymore. They're questioning why they even got into this industry. Because if you're seeing people every day that you don't like, you don't connect with, you're doing things that are go against your grain or against your medical ethics, then what are you doing? And so I think it's about starting with a realistic picture of how long it's going to take you to be successful and putting the strategies and the plan in place that will allow you to get there. So you do it in a sensible, considered way. You're doing the best things by the patients. You're not compromising or putting yourself in a vulnerable situation financially. So my advice is slow down. Think about how you're going to survive with not a huge amount of income coming from this business and build a strategy that's going to allow you to do it in a way that is responsible and but, but as it both medically and commercially. Can I build on that? Yeah. Um, I know that you obviously uh, drill down on financials yes. and, and business for your mm. um, uh, mentees, mm-hmm. but do you guys also, or, or, or I'm assuming you also advise them to, you just said it, what, who is your dream customer? Yeah. And if you can very clearly identify what that means to you, who do you want and, yeah. and what services you're going to do? Because one of the common mistakes I think people do is they just replicate every other clinic model that's yeah. out there. Yeah. And they don't even know why they're doing it. They just set up and, and, yeah. and most, copy most, and paste somewhere else. Most people do what most people do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that is the problem because then they're sort of just rehashing old mistakes. So yep. if you could sort of really think about, well, what is that patient journey? We've, we've just discussed yep. what it might be like in a gold standard way. So don't ever go down the walk-in way. Make, make it impossible and, and change it to, to some other practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so j- just my yeah, other no, thoughts on that. What do you think, Nadia? A bit to unpack there. <laughs> there is. And you know what I would say, Jake, is I don't necessarily know when we're starting out that we know what our dream patient is. But you know what I would say is what is your dream skill? What is your best skill? What is the thing that you love and you do really well? And then I think if you start to build on that and you get really, really good results. So when I started out, I knew I was never going to inject. Yeah. You know, I had a bit of a go at it, did the weekend courses, you know, went here, went there, did a bit of mentoring and thought, you know what, uh, you know, these proportions, you know, I got my little protractor or whatever the damn thing's called. <laughs> Still not, it's, this is just not, this is not me. <laughs> but what I actually love, I love doing consults. Yeah. So I'm happy doing the consults and then saying, okay, let me hand you over to Dr. Walsh for this, that, and the other thing. Let me let me feel very comfortable with a really close-knit team that I can work with and be very sure that we get you to where you want to be. Yeah. So my dream person or my dream patient is the patient that's happy for me to say, no, I'm not the person for this, but if I'm understanding you correctly, um, David said, there's a want rather than a, a need basis. I'd actually say it's the other way around. People need to feel good all the time. Yep. So you might be able to give them what they want in the moment, but that's not what they actually need. Mm. They mm. need to feel good. So the only way to feel good is actually be on a journey. Yep. And I think I hear Jake talk about this all the time in his post. It's the journey. Now, the only way we can develop a journey with a patient is if we know the patient. You can't develop a journey with somebody who walks in off the street. 
Yeah. You only get to build a journey with them when you get to know the person. So from my perspective, it's about getting to know them and then getting other people involved. It might be Ron Kleiner because these are the people that just come to my practice. But get the people that you work ethically with, get the people that you feel confident with, you know, so-and-so does really great whatever, you know, and they're they're attached to our clinic or I'm happy to refer you, make a referral. This is, I think this is how we build safety for patients, safety for ourselves, and that's a big issue. After 40 years, I can tell you, being able to sleep safe at night and, you know, not worrying about what in God's name is, you know, my staff member doing, how do they burn that person with a laser, what's going on, getting really good people around you And I think, you know, to add to what you were saying, David, mentors, getting a great accountant, getting people that have run really successful businesses, getting all of those things in place, first of all, getting great mentors. I'll, you know, I'll go and bother people that right now my thing is PRP or autologous plasmas. I'm, I, you know, I'm shameless enough to go and, you know, knock on the door of people like Matt Murphy, you know, the New York Stem Cell Society and go, I'd like to really learn from you. I want to know more about this. And they kind of look at you a little bit crazy to start with. But eventually, <laughs> you know, they're really generous with their knowledge. Most people who are good at what they do are generous with their knowledge and they will become great mentors. Yeah. I'd give uh, one tip for the people listening, and this goes for clinic owners as well as injectors, because I, th- I sometimes think there's a bit of a, a disconnect between mm-hmm. the clinic owners who might not be medical and, and obviously the injectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sort of, I guess it gets to the crux of what we've been talking about. For, for new patients, I think it's a lot easier to have one offering, just offer a consultation. Don't call it uh-huh. toxin, filler, bioremodeler, just call it consultation for new patient and give them an hour, 60 minutes. That means that there's no pressure to do anything because you don't, you haven't labeled it. Patient is maybe more happy because they realize you're not selling them anything particular. You, you, you know, you're diagnosing, you're being the investigator. Um, it means that you've got time with that patient. So, you know, it, whether it's complex or, or easy, you're not, you're not scrambling. Uh, you can get your notes done and all that kind of logistical stuff. Mm-hmm. But more so, it allows you to plan that journey. Uh, and and, yes. and you be very deliberate in that. You say to your patient, well, we've got 60 minutes today, but obviously we're not going to cover everything off your checklist. So let's, you know, talk. Let's just have a free conversation. And I think that that's a good way of, of injectors maybe re-spinning things rather than advertising lips, cheeks, jawline, um, because it sort of ring fences you to do something. It handcuffs you. Whereas if you make it a little bit more generic with a bit more time, uh, and you advertise it that, you know, we'll just see what you need on the day. We'll work it out. Um, I, th- I think it takes the pressure off. Mm. Uh, have you tried that yeah. in your clinics? Yeah, I mean, you know, in the chain clinics that I was involved in, it was difficult to do that. Mm. And, and that's kind of part of the problem. I'm not here to say anything, you know, chain clinics have a place in the market, but, you know, it's difficult to argue that they haven't commercialized these treatments and created a pressure for everyone involved in the industry to sort of follow suit because they've become so powerful and dominant yeah. and also it has programmed patients to think and expect certain things. Yep. So I think what you're saying is important because those, so- those sorts of barriers start to then co- create a filtration system for you to potentially discourage the patients that aren't in line 
with the way that you wish to function as a practitioner to come into your practice. So I think it's almost like a first step in yeah. pushing away those patients who you know, you know, are going to expect the treatment to be done the way that they want to do it and the time they want to do it and not really be too bothered about your input. You're just there as a, you know, as a, a mechanic. monkey. <laughs> yeah, basically a mechanic just sort of treating an issue without actually diagnosing the problem or understanding things holistically. So I think that's a great first step. Yeah. And I think you should build that into your marketing, your advertising, your social media to tell people that's how I work. That's how we do things because then you'll attract those people who resonate with it. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, you'll push away the people who just want. Yeah. And, and this, is why, this is why planning is so important. You know, it's not just about planning your treatment. It's about planning your entire business. So if you know that, as you said, it's a two to three year journey, you know, identify what sort of patients you want, what sort of injector you're going to be, who your mentors are. You financially got a backup plan so that you're not feeling that pressure to sort of draw in, you know, maximum dollar from every patient that comes in. Yeah. And just focus on what it is that wanted you, that drove you towards this industry in the first place. Are you here because you genuinely love helping patients and performing aesthetic treatments? The money will come yeah. as, a, as a byproduct. If you do, you know, money follows success. If, you, if you're successful at what you do, the money will just happen and success comes from getting up every day, doing what you love, being genuine about it mm. um, and the rest kind of takes care of itself. So I think a lot of people start with the wrong motivation yeah. or chasing the wrong. It's like, it's like a mirage. It'll continue to elude you if you try <laughs> and chase it, I think. What do you think, Nadia? I think you're totally, absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. Um, when you say you can't, can you commercialise initial consults, why can't we commercialise initial consults? They're buying our knowledge. Yes. I, I charge for consults, well, for initial consults, and they know they're not going to get a treatment. Well, They'd be lucky to walk out. They might walk out with a sunblock, you know, Yeah. and we would have played. We would have played with their skin and put one sunblock on one side of their face and put another one on the other side of their face and you know, their eyes are burning on that one. Well, that's not the one for you. Or they've gone home with a sample of four, see which one fits under your makeup. I call that play, you know, and I'm looking at how they're treating their skin, how they're, you know, and when they relax, well, what was it that you came today about? Oh, it was these lines. Oh, and are they still important to you? Actually, no. You you mentioned that we're going to start here. I, can you book me in and we're going to start this journey? When can I start my journey? Mm -hmm. So I think we do commercialise our initial consults and that's that's how you then create longevity with patients. They yeah. want to be on the journey. They don't want to feel good just today. They want to feel good forever. Yeah. So we've done that to ourselves. We, yeah. we, we give consults away for free or well, give them. And, and so we've actually told our patients that our knowledge is not valuable because the consults are free or you pay a, a $50 deposit and it comes off your treatments. So actually, this is part of the problem. We've actually created the problem for ourselves because we've told patients our knowledge ain't worth shit because it's free. No. And you can walk in and anytime you like. Yeah. It's like buying a hamburger. Yeah. Well, yeah. Literally. I mean, what, what do you say to those listeners? Because I know commercially and, and experience, uh, or sorry, the inexperienced injectors, they find that very hard to reconcile. They feel almost embarrassed or ashamed to ask people for money for their time and their yeah. wisdom. They, you know, it, it seems so crazy now because I'm experienced, but I remember being in that position. Yeah. So, Nadia, what, what do you say to those people listening who still do free consults and, and don't value their time? What are you telling your patients? What are you actually telling your patients? You're telling them, don't trust me because I've got nothing valuable to tell you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that really the message that you want to send your patient? No. 
you want to send your patient a message, you can trust me because I have done a lot of work to get past Google. I can help you with managing Google, but what you're actually buying is my knowledge. Yeah. And and by the way, if if you are inexperienced, you still have knowledge. Yeah. You know? Oh my God, yeah. Absolutely. You know, you might be offering a basic service, but you are still looking after your patient within that scope of practice. So never devalue yourself. And if the patients aren't prepared to pay for that, then that's all you probably need to know that they don't they don't value your is that the right patient for you? If they don't value if they don't value your knowledge or value your time, then are really they the right person for you? Yeah. Hundred percent. The other, the other thing I think that people kind of might miss, and this might be a bit like, I'm a bit like Jake in, I'm a bit OCD with having to do things kind of, I have to do things my way. My, it's kind of my way or the highway, and that's maybe good or maybe bad, I don't know. But in the morning, I send out a message to everyone that I've done big treatments on the day before, and I just want to know, you know, hi, you know, put, the, put you know, put the name in, hi, just checking in how you're feeling today, how's your skin looking, what's going on, you had a treatment with Dr. Walsh yesterday, you know, you won't expect anything from your neurotoxin today, but is everything going okay? I don't want to know in six days' time or in a week's time that the wheels have fallen off. I want to know now, mm. you know, and and we talked about this earlier. How do we re- how do we get, get out of, don't get into conflicts kind of avoid them before they even start don't yeah. have them knocking on your door that you actually have to think about conflict resolution hedge it hedge it off before it even gets there the best way to do that is be ahead of the curve and yeah. being ahead yeah. of the curve is it takes 30 seconds to automate a message to your previous patients and if you've got a relationship with those patients they'll send back and say oh thanks for thanks for checking in with me yeah everything's great or no look i've got this big bruise is it okay i want to know those things before they become you know an infection or before they become an occlusion i want to know it's a really good point i think what you're also saying is you know from the patient's perspective they realize you care you know they've yeah. given all this money but you've actually reached out after that transaction and you're still caring about them um, Do you, I even I even message people after a consult, you know, my initial consult. I'll actually message them and say, we had we had a, a lot of time yesterday. We covered a lot of topics. I know that you wouldn't have been able to remember re- remember everything, but I sent you information. Do you have any questions that we can follow up on? Yeah, and they thank me for that. Mm. You know, but that's part of the journey, and I'm also teaching them how I work. Yeah. So each time you come in, you're going to get photos taken. Each time you come in, you're going to have to sign a consent form for whatever we're doing. There's going to be patient education at the end of it. I want to be part of this journey with you. Mm. And that's that's what we're selling, I think. Yeah. I, we're not I, just selling the injection that we do. To- totally agree. But how do we deal with the patients that we do all those things, but there's an issue? Just say, for example... I don't know. They're not happy with you. So the swelling's gone down. It's two weeks later. You've sent the message. They said everything was fine at the time, but things, for whatever reason, they're not happy and there is a conflict. So, okay. Is there you, a conflict? Is there a conflict or do we just need to get more information? So I would say bring them back in and do a review. I don't, I don't charge for reviews. That's one of the few things that I don't charge for because I, I see reviews as, hedging off a problem. 
So mm. if I want somebody to come in, I'll say to them, look, I can hear that you're unhappy. You've sent me photos. Yep, I can see what's going on there. But I'd actually like to see you in person. So I will then be thinking about what did I tell this person was the post-care and where could they have stuffed that up? Or did I not explain it well enough for them to be able to follow my instructions? So generally it's about what am I doing that hasn't helped? And I will actually ask them that. Okay, so take me back to when day one we did such and such, then what did you do when you went home? And God knows, you know, the dropped eyebrow. Oh, I had a massage after after I had my neurotoxin. We had a massage, face down massage. Mm, there we go. So I didn't actually educate that person well enough, did I? Yeah. That's my yeah. fault. It's, is there a conflict? No, it's a learning point. I didn't actually, actually educate that person well enough or I didn't explain and emphasise what I really needed them to hear. And so I try to turn it around the other way. Is it a conflict or is it something that we can both learn from and you'll disarm them fairly quickly that way? Okay, so this is what we talked about. This is what we're going to do next time. However, if I do do a treatment and I think the treatment, the results crap, and I've said, yeah, you're going to have to pay for, you know, eight to ten treatments or three or four treatments, and we get to the end of three or four treatments and I'm thinking to myself, this is this is just not what I would be happy with, then I might say to them, look, I agree with you. I'm not happy with the outcome either. I would like you to come back and I would do this treatment again at my own cost. So you make judgment calls along the way. You know along, you get better at knowing yeah, it should look like this. Someone's skin should look like this by the time we've done X number of whatever. Or, okay, that treatment didn't work. I'm not happy with it. You're not happy with it. How do we make this better together? And how do we learn from it together? Can I ask, Nadia, um, it, it's a really good point. You know, none of our treatments are guaranteed. This no, is, nothing uh, in life's guaranteed. Nothing's <laughs> in life's guaranteed. But particularly when you're trying to tap into someone's mindset that you're treating you don't know what their expectations are truly you think you know because you've had that conversation and a good consult you've done the photos blah 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 but you know one percent of the time you do get that tricky patient or or just that patient that they didn't get a good result and you can see it and you and you agree with them but pre-treatment do you have a do you have a explicit chat about that do you say yes. there yeah, are no because guarantee? i will say there there are no free treatments Right. So there are no free treatments. Generally, I'll have to drill down in what's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And when we know what's gone wrong, and it sometimes it will be they haven't they haven't given me all the information because I haven't asked all the questions I needed to ask. So I've got to drill down a little bit more. Yeah. Generally, I will say that there are no free treatments. In the rare cases where I have done something, it's because I've possibly tweaked my protocol slightly. I know I've done something that, you know, was slightly maybe experimental on my part and I'm actually not happy or I genuinely said to that person, look, I think you're going to need six or seven of these treatments. However, we may need more. And so I'll always say that to them. And that's part, that's part of the consult. That's part of the consent. You know, the consent will say, there is no guarantee here. I'm recommending that we do X number of treatments and then we, re we review. Now, yeah. when we yeah. review, 
we I'll do a Vizier consult, you know, a Vizier camera. I'll have all the photographs and I'll shove them on two screens. God knows somebody set the two screens up for me because I can't even log on to <laughs> a Zoom meeting. But I want to be able to work with the patient. Do you think this is actually looking better or do you think, you know, we can go a bit further? Is this where you want to be? So I'm always putting it back to them. They're making the choice. This is what's happened after three treatments. We've given it a good enough time or a long enough time to see a result. Is this where we want to be or do you think we want to be a little bit better? And I'll always say to people, you know, patients will say, how much better do you think something's going to get? Do you think I'm going to get a 50% improvement? Do you think I'm going to get an 80% improvement? I'll say to them, it's really hard to know because everyone, especially as we age, our repair rate slows down. But this is what I'm going to recommend first of all, and then we're, we're going to review it. Yeah. Now, yeah. when I say a moment ago I will do a free treatment, it will generally be if I'm playing with a protocol and I will tell, I'll be upfront and tell that person, look, I'm trying this out. I don't know whether it's going to work. But if it doesn't, I'm happy to kind of wear the cost and fix that again. Yeah. And document those conversations. <laughs> oh, and boy. From a cosmetic perspective, I know you do mental health as well, but it's in our new regulations that we have to have financial consent. Yeah. So you need all of those generic Absolutely. common things on your consent form. Yeah. So there's no um, sort of misunderstanding. Yeah. We, we actually send out a book. We have a, a patient information book. So, you know, it, and we, we also use a, a two-way texting system. We use it in mental health because mental health, we do a lot of medical legal work, but I've, I've moved it over to the cosmetic practice as well, where very few things are done verbally. Everything is written. Everything is written in some form where it can be uploaded to their notes. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if, you know, you think you booked an appointment, it's something as simple as you booked an appointment and didn't confirm well, I'm sorry, you don't have an appointment. You didn't confirm and there's no record of you ever confirming. Yeah. yeah. So very, very, very interesting educational discussion. I think a lot of people can take home some advice and implement it into their practice or tweak what they're doing. Maybe can we just distill it down into some key points for people to sort of, like a summary, I guess, because we sort of, we went down a few rabbit holes. So maybe (laughs) just to sort of bring it back into some condensed points what do you how what do you think um well i think nadia and and we touched on trying to suss out who's in your room and make it as fun enjoyable uh playful nadia sort of mentioned uh, and sometimes that works sometimes that doesn't work sometimes it's got to be more formal and so you've got to suss out their personality and their language and body language um if you do have the facility try and do some information gathering before they've come yeah so that will give you a bit of a flavor of what you're dealing with. Um, and, and then you touched on wants versus needs. Yep. That, that's a big thing for me. Yep. I, I almost fall back on it on every consultation because patients don't know what they need or want, but I try and crystallize that for them. Yep. You come here with a want, but sometimes there's a need and yep. sometimes we have to go, sort of go backwards on, yep. on what you came here for. Yep. Um, next, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, commercially <laughs> set yourself up for a two to three year plan. and be of the understanding and be prepared for the fact that you might not make money for a little while. And so you never want the commercial pressures to compromise your decisions as a, as a clinician. So proper planning expectations, being in the industry and doing what you're doing for the right reasons. I know there are a lot of people that have come into this industry because they've been lured 
buy money and this has been a very lucrative industry and I think that you know people that potentially are in that position that are not that happy with what they're doing maybe need to reconsider if this is the right job for them if this is what they're really passionate about absolutely anything to add to that Nadi that you, that you think we've missed or you want to tack on to that I think there's so many things that we could we can yeah. keep going on but I think the thing that you've both mentioned David you mentioned being prepared to build yeah you know, I think I can't emphasize that enough. Practices take a long time. I'm to, I'm talking forty years that I can look over and see the you know the the metaphors, the the meta, metamorphosis rather of how my practice, my businesses have changed. Yeah. You've got to give it time. Jake, you mentioned you mentioned about being being prepared to be on part of a journey. Finding the patient's language, finding how what they really want. I can't emphasize that enough. And I think we need to find a way to formally teach people how to do a consultation. Mm. I guess I'm lucky from a psychiatric perspective that we we have a very formalized consultation process. Be consistent, I guess is the thing I would say. Start out the way you want to end. If you want to be successful, then you've got to start being successful to start with. Be slow, be consistent, and like Jake said, just get to know the person as much as you can before you start doing anything. Hundred percent. Well, we could have gone on for hours. Yeah, I'm sure. Maybe, chat, maybe yeah. we'll do another one in twelve months' time and and sort of rehash this. But Nadia, thank you so much for joining us. It was a fairly last minute uh, scramble to get this planned, but I thought that went really well. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. Sometimes the the best outcomes are as a result of spur of the moment and spontaneity. And I think this is a great way to start 2024 without sort of talking about technical application of technique is getting into the right psychology, starting off with with the right mindset and potentially just taking a few things that we've said from this discussion and implementing it into your practice and seeing how it goes for you in 2024. Awesome. Um, Thank you so much for inviting me along. It's our pleasure. Nice to see you in face-to-face, even if it wasn't in person. Yeah. And just before we let you go, is anything you want to talk about in terms of our Patreon? I mean, it's it's a big part of what we're doing. We're trying to grow that community. I think that, you know, there are a lot of practitioners out there in the ether who are on their own. They don't know where to go, who to turn to for support and mentorship. So, I mean, without putting words in your mouth, is anything that you can tell us about the Patreon and and sort of what you think of the community? You don't need to put any, any words in my mouth. I am such an advocate of it because I think it is a platform and you guys, you guys have gone... You've built a brilliant platform. People want support. This is the platform to get that support. You know, if you if you want information from people around the world, this platform is where you're going to get it. Join the platform. Throw ideas out there. You're going to get people to help you. And that's what you need in the industry. You need help. You can't do it alone. Thank you, Nadia. Appreciate that. Very, very kind of you. Thank you very much. Well, we look forward to seeing your um, continued input on in the WhatsApp groups. And obviously, we'll continue to chat and um, love to catch up for a, a coffee in person one day if you make it down to Sydney soon. I know you were down in Berrimer a few weeks ago, so you just came past the doorstep. So let us know <laughs> when, you, when you're coming by and let's catch up. Awesome. And guys, if you are interested, obviously, the yes. details for Patreon and everything else we do are in the podcast description. Awesome. Take well, care, Nadia. See you later. Bye. 
for our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our Patreon for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information. 